0: A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny, And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show.
1: Ah, off and running on a Monday... And uh, there's there's so much to keep track of here. Sometimes it's it's seriously confusing to sit down and go, okay, where do we begin? I guess we have to start with the, the end in mind. Well, what exactly are we trying to accomplish here, Brian? What exactly is our goal? All right, well, plain and simple. My goal here is to uh, provide you with information that hopefully offers a little bit uh, of clarity on what's going on in the world. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to believe it. That doesn't mean that you should therefore go out and repeat this or parrot it to other people. I'm just asking you to consider this as a way of expanding your vantage point, your perspective on the world, in ways that uh, legacy and corporate media absolutely will not allow to take place. The narrative managers are doing a... I mean, there. I've never seen it like this before in my life. I've never seen such a sustained effort to, to try to... Uh, To keep people on a certain narrative and make sure nobody is questioning anything outside of it, like I'm seeing today. It's almost as if free speech itself is under a very sustained attack. So, I don't have all the answers, but I'm a guy who is willing to engage in wrong think. In fact, I revel in it, and I encourage you to do the same. But again, it doesn't mean that I have all the answers. And at the end of the day, with this information... Some of it's going to be good news, some of it is you know, not so good news because there's a lot of crazy stuff happening. My goal is to have you informed, empowered, and more certain of who you are and what you stand for than simply what you're against. I hope that makes sense, but on that note, let's dive right in. First of all, a shout out to my sponsors including ClimbingUpward.com. That's my friend Dr. John Pulver. We'll have him back on the show a little bit later this week. TMCPNation.com. That's my friend John Harvey, host of the Modern Conservative Podcast, Borelli.com, LifesavingFood.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. By the way, as far as Monticello College goes, if you are looking for an education for our time, and by our time I mean exactly what it sounds like, in a time where everything seems just unru- uprooted and, and up in the air and un- untethered from reality, you should take a very serious look at what Dr. Shannon Brooks is is doing through Monticello College, and uh, how it encourages people to not just, you know, become more classically educated, but to actually become the best possible version of themselves. And I'm one of those people who believes that the most revolutionary thing that you and I can do in the face of of a world gone mad is to become the best version of yourself possible. So with that in mind, let's dive into a couple of topics that uh, seem to be of, of, uh, Timely consideration here. Do we have a moral duty to just let things happen or a moral duty to protect those things we value the most? Now, of course, I'm asking this in light of, you know, look what happened with the, the, the Marine on the subway car who ended up choking out this guy who was menacing people and had been for years. The guy ultimately died. Now the Marine is charged with manslaughter. And it seems like I, I read about something. Oh, Tennessee. A guy, there was a home invasion taking place and this homeowner apparently uh, came under gunfire from the the would-be home invaders. He returned fire. It's unknown if he hit anybody, but because he shot back at the uh, home invaders, he's now being charged with reckless endangerment. Police still haven't caught the home invaders, but it just makes you wonder, is self-defense becoming illegal Now, you don't have to look too far to find countries where that's absolutely the case. Um, Europe, for instance, I mean, for crying out loud in Britain, look at the the different efforts that are underway to take knives away from people, kitchen knives. Well, you know, we don't sell knives, just anybody, even a butter knife. You know, and they they are just trying to disarm the people in, in ways that I think would have been unimaginable even just a generation ago. Really crazy stuff. In Sweden... A young girl was, uh, well, she was being set upon by a group of men. I can only presume they they weren't uh, doing so to, you know, to help her. They were were trying to rape her. She pepper sprayed them, and now she is facing charges for her use of pepper spray. Now, look, maybe I'm just a stick in the mud. Maybe I'm a throwback to too many John Wayne Westerns or whatever, but something here is really off kilter. When you become the one facing charges for trying to protect yourself or trying to protect others, there's a guy on on TikTok. I don't know this kid's name. I don't really care what his name is, but um, he's very indicative of the the growing mentality of look, we can do anything we want, and there's nothing you can do about it. And I don't know if I'm just talking about just as a kid. He's black. He's in Britain. And what he does is he will go walk into people's homes. And I mean, like, march right through the front door and just start wandering around their house. And as they're like, hey, get out of here, you know, he just sits there and, and basically dares them to do something about it. He's not he's not aggressively challenging them to fight him. He's just doing whatever he wants. He'll go look in rooms. He'll, you know, open drawers, whatever. He does it. He jumps into people's cars. Oh, I thought you were my Uber. You know, and it's it's simply being done. He, look, he's doing it for TikTok, so right, he's trying to provoke a reaction. He's trying to get lots of views. He stole a lady's dog, literally picked it up and ran away with it, and laughing the whole time. Ha ha! Isn't this funny? Isn't this really something? And I'm not uh, I'm not wishing for for violence here, but I'm at the same time I'm thinking, you know, I think maybe it would actually be a good thing. If every man, or at least everybody who purports to be a man, understood how to lay out another guy with one punch, just how to throw a really decent, well-timed punch, where to hit, to put somebody like that flat on their back, not because, you know, they need to be beaten down in the name of social justice or what, just, just because, I think as, as Will Grigg would put it, <clears throat> there are some people among us who are about uh, five or six stout butt whippings away from being decent human beings. And sometimes I think maybe maybe we need to go back to that kind of thinking to where misbehaving like this is actually risky at any rate. Got an article here from Joshua Phillips. <clears throat> this was published on uh, actually the Epic Times then republished on zerohedge.com. Is self-defense becoming illegal? And he asks the question, if someone you love were threatened or physically attacked, do you have the right to defend them? Even more so, when police are defunded and criminals are being released on the streets, do you have a right to protect yourself? Or do you just have to let things happen? Must you just watch while innocent people are victimized by criminals? That's the question currently on trial in New York. That's the case of Jordan Neely. Now, if you read most of the news outlets on the left, you'll hear, well, a 30-year-old black man was a street performer, a Michael Jackson impersonator. They'll use the word beloved, a beloved street performer. You'll also hear that his friends say he was a sweet kid and he suffered from mental disabilities and became homeless. But if you read news outlets on the right, you'll also understand this guy was arrested 42 times between 2013 and 2021. He was convicted of trying to kidnap a seven-year-old girl in Inwood, Queens, back in 2015, sentenced to four months in jail. In 2021, he was arrested for punching a 67-year-old woman in the face as she exited a subway train in New York's East Village, breaking her nose and fracturing her orbital bone. He pleaded guilty and, while facing 15 months in an alternative to incarceration program, skipped his court date and had a warrant out for his arrest since February. Now, here's the kicker. Both sides of Neely's story are true. He was a talented dancer who suffered from mental problems and had become a criminal menace. The New York justice system repeatedly led him off the hook, even outside of his arrests. People were posting online about personal experiences of being threatened or attacked by Neely. And then on May 1st, Neely was allegedly threatening passengers on a New York subway car until a former U.S. Marine intervened restraining Neely with a chokehold while two other men helped to subdue him. After Neely lost consciousness, the men placed Neely in a recovery position, but Neely died. Now, nobody was initially charged. Video of the incident, which was limited to when Neely had already been restrained, was quickly picked up by political actors to play into the country's race narratives. Perhaps you saw Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez writing on Twitter a few days later that Jordan Neely was murdered! She claimed he was homeless and crying for food in a time when the city's raising rents and stripping services to militarize itself, while many in power demonize the poor. Oh yes, she played it to full effect, saying it was disgusting that the man who allegedly killed Neely wasn't charged. Others on the far left came forward to criticize the case as being about race and to suggest that justice was needed, although not even among Democrats was everyone in agreement. But of course, these political attacks sounded like a dog whistle to the radical groups in New York. No major protests like those that were common during the Black Lives Matter summer riots a few years back. But now, the young man who restrained Mr. Neely is in fact facing charges. And I think there's a bigger question here is what kind of precedent might be established if this
0: guy is convicted and sent to prison. We'll come back to this in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: So, I want to continue this uh, discussion about uh, is self defense becoming illegal? And I know there, there might be some people who would just say, "Well, Brian, it sounds to me like you're just this bloodthirsty vigilante type mindset thinking people should take the law into their own hands." And if you know if you want to believe that, I'll, I'll say you go ahead and knock yourself out. But I also want to explain, just by way of you know, well, what by what uh, authority would I speak on such a thing? I'm someone who has taken you know self defense pretty seriously, and I, when I say pretty seriously, I mean that. I have taken the time, the effort, and the expense to go out and get the best training that I could painfully afford. I've taken more than a dozen very high-quality defensive firearms classes, uh, among which uh, not only, you know, the shooting classes, but also um, teaching mindset because mindset is really, you know, the thing that keeps you out of trouble. It's, it's what allows you to notice what's going on around you. It's, it's what allows you to avoid trouble before it becomes unavoidable. And I guess I, I I share this just to say, the more training that I've received, the less likely I feel like it is that I will ever have to point a gun at another human being simply because I am aware enough that I can see trouble coming and avoid it. And I believe that really is the best possible response in most cases. But there are times where you can't avoid it. Locked on a subway car with someone who is actively menacing people, threatening people. What do you do? And this is where I think, yep, we, we need to, to know that when the police can't be there to save us, and, and I don't mean any disrespect here. A lot of good cops out there. Hey, I would come run and I'd bring friends. But they're not going to be there in your moment of need. So the authority to act has to be there in the hands of the citizen to defend their life or their family Or in some cases, their property, depending, you know, on, on, sometimes look, I'd rather give up a piece of property than take a person's life. If it's something minor, that ratty old lawnmower sitting outside, do you want to steal it? I'm not going to be happy about it, but I'm not necessarily willing to put you in a grave over it either. But you threaten one of my kids with serious bodily harm or death. Okay. Now it's a totally different scenario. But, of course, the, the people who are in power right now do not want an armed citizenry, and they especially don't want people who understand their rights and understand that it's appropriate to defend yourself, sometimes even against government aggression. Ooh, that's the part that really triggers them. So now you've got all these protesters coming out of New York about, oh, well, this guy, you know, he, he restrained and choked this guy to death, this, this subway performer who was threatening everybody. And interestingly enough, it was a, there was an outright communist group that was involved in the Neely protests and actually stated in a tweet, thank you to all of our comrades who answered the call today, we're just getting started. Oh boy, here come the revolutionaries. So, let's dig into this a little bit. In this article from, uh, from Zero Hedge, what you find is that the Soros, George Soros, finances the campaigns of radical district attorneys who let criminals off the hook. This is not just true in New York. This is true in most major cities across the U.S. Then a criminal is killed by people defending themselves when the city's justice system fails. A radical Congress member whose political campaign was notably assisted by a media network with funding from Soros comes out and calls for arrest. Then a radical group funded by Soros stages a protest while being backed by a communist group tied to that same politician also calling for arrests. The point here is there seems to be a lot of overlap taking place here. So now this uh, former U.S. Marine Daniel Penny faces a felony charge of second-degree manslaughter, although he holds that he acted in self-defense. And by the way, numerous people of all races have stepped forward and said we're grateful that he was there and did what he did. Now you need to understand, they're, they're not playing politics. They're actually at risk. In particular, there was a black woman who spoke up and said, I'm very, very grateful for what he did. But she's also very scared that her own people are going to tear her apart because, well, she took the wrong side in a racial question. It never should have been a racial question. Anyway, is this really about crime or is it really about justice? Is it about something else? The article says it's not really clear, but what we can say is that the narratives aren't lining up. Many politicians who called for Daniel Penny's arrest were simultaneously criticizing the use of justice. They were noting that young men are being sent to prison when in reality many just need help. But they did this while calling for Penny to be sent to prison. Others were more direct, suggesting this may not be about manslaughter or justice or even about mental health. They're the ones who are saying this is solely about race. By the way, New York Mayor Eric Adams flip-flopped on that point first, criticizing AOC for claiming that Penny murdered Neely. Then, Adams turned around and brought race-based narratives to the case. So, for conservatives, it's not really about race. It's about whether you're allowed to defend yourself. The case has become a symbol of what's wrong with defunding the police and about whether or not people are being selectively prosecuted based not on crime, but simply on the color of their skin. So, when people like New York uh, Mayor Adams make it about race, people start wondering if the case would be treated differently if race wasn't an issue. Now, I don't know if this will bring you any hope, but uh, Daniel Penny has a uh, give-send-go account where people are contributing money for his legal defense. Last I heard, it was well above $2 million. And since, sadly, I believe that we do live in a time where you get as much justice as you can afford, hopefully that's enough to carry the day. I kinda, I'm kind of having flashbacks to uh, Kyle Rittenhouse and his trial. But here's the question I'd like you to at least consider. If nobody will protect you, what are your options? Even if you see others being attacked or harassed, should you do anything to help them? Should you allow them to be, to be attacked? Or are you willing to risk going to prison simply for stepping up to help? I know the left likes to portray it as, well, you're just all a bunch of wannabe Rambos out there thinking you can go out there and impose yourself on society at the point of a gun. I trained with a lot of people, hundreds of people over the years. And I can tell you that uh, the people who bring a Rambo-type attitude don't stick around. Their egos can't handle the training because uh, their their incompetence is shown. They don't like to look as incompetent as they really are. Frankly, none of us do. But the people who stick through that discomfort and embrace their, their incompetence and work on conscious competence or unconscious competence, those are the ones who not only know how to use a firearm, but more importantly, they know when to use it in self-defense. And let's, let's be really blunt here. In the natural world, self-defense is written into the DNA of life. Even bugs have a means to defend themselves. Nearly every creature on earth has been given by God a means to defend itself, whether claws, teeth, stingers, stink, <laughs> whatever it may be, they, they can do it. Humans, on the other hand, create tools like swords or guns to defend ourselves, and that's been true throughout all of human history. What I'm asking you to consider here is that right to self-defense is the right to life. It precedes government. The Second Amendment did not create your right to self-defense or what you can use. It recognizes a pre-existing right and, more importantly, limits government's authority to act or to abridge that right by saying, shall not be infringed. The right to guard your life is one of the main pillars of law. I know that there are those who say, well, now, Brian, doesn't uh, Christianity teach you turn the other cheek? And there are times where that is appropriate. yes. I also believe that Christianity teaches that there are certain things that are precious enough that you defend them, even to bloodshed. So I would recommend, yes, get the training, become competent, have skill at arms, have the thinking skills to know you know when it's appropriate and when it isn't appropriate, to to utilize violence, to protect the innocent. But on top of all that, I'm going to throw one more recommendation in, and that is make sure your conscience is calibrated regularly, because that'll keep you out of a lot of trouble.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right. I hope I haven't
1: been on too big of a rant here for the first couple of segments, but man, I really feel like I needed to get that off my chest. I just, I'm so grateful to live where I live, which no, it's not a perfect, uh, violence free utopia. We have problems, but we don't have some of the just racial insanity that is, is taking hold in big cities. And, and, you know, I, I regularly see people say, if you want to save yourself and your family, get out of the cities. Move away from the big cities and do it quickly. I know it's not possible for everybody, but uh, for the people who do. And I can attest this, having moved from a large city, you know, just a couple of years ago. The sense of relief at being where, where common sense is actually common, it's It's immense. I pray for those people who, who are trying to find their way to peace and safety. There are still islands of peace and safety and relative freedom out there. But if you want to make the move, you're going to have to do it sooner than later. There's going to come a point where it's going to be pretty hard to escape. I, I think of the, the films Escape from New York, Escape from L.A., you know, Kurt Russell, uh, good old Snake Plissken, you know, did a did a great job in those movies, but seems like... Uh, seems like the dystopia is coming. All right. Let's talk about a cure for this kind of thing. I want to talk about the jury for a moment. This is an article that I came across on the Foundation for Economic Education's website. And uh, I was not aware of this, but apparently in Scotland, government officials are piloting a program that would remove ancient procedural checks on state power to suit their preferred legal outcomes. Let me be more specific. This article by Harrison Griffiths is titled, Juryless Trials are a Naked Power Grab and a Serious Threat to Liberty. He says, since the ratification of the Magna Carta in 1215, the right of accused people to be tried by their peers has been an essential protection against government overreach in English common law. That function was so vital that the denial of a right to jury or to trial by jury, was one of the American revolutionaries' core grievances that led them to declare independence from Great Britain in 1776. Fast forward to 2023, and the Scottish government will pilot to trying certain serious sexual assault cases without a jury. Now, this may be motivated by a sincere desire to get justice for victims, but still, undermining juries only consolidates the power of government ministers and senior judges. Now, the rationale of the proposal is simple. Convictions for sexual assault are low. The Scottish government believes juries are partly responsible. Scotland's Justice Secretary, Angela Constance, has cited the prevalence of preconceptions among juries. Now, she's referring to the tendency of juries to believe common rape myths about the nature of consent and the relevance of victims' previous sexual behavior. Although we should absolutely tackle these pernicious myths, it's not the core reason for the low conviction rate. Poor policing, low reporting, the inherent difficulty in gathering evidence to prove an accusation are far more significant obstacles. Even if the Scottish government's complaints were valid, it still would not justify abolishing juries or diminishing their roles. Trials conducted by an independent judiciary and resolved by juries are vital checks to state power. The government can investigate and charge people with crimes, take proportionate action to bring justice to victims, and protect society from violence. The judiciary's role is to safeguard people's rights in the process and ensure the state does not victimize innocent people. Trials are meant to evaluate the merits of individual cases. It would be profoundly unjust to subject people to fines, probation, imprisonment, and a life spent labeled as a sex offender just to satisfy the Scottish government's arbitrary prosecution quota. That simply perpetuates the cycle of victimization and relegates innocent people unfortunate enough to be accused of sex crimes to being collateral damage. But on this issue in particular, the risk of collateral damage is significant. It is true that throughout history, women have been treated unequally, denied liberty and treated as men's property, but we've seen how a vengeful collectivist approach to sexual justice has tangibly damaged both men and women. The believe all women mentality instilled by the hashtag me era saw some men accused of sexual misconduct with claims that were either false or exaggerated. A February 2020 survey found 60% of men are now afraid to mentor women in the workplace for fear of malicious or false accusations. Translating this mindset that blaming innocent men can be justified on the basis that women have been victimized as a collective in the past into our formal justice system where people's liberty and property are on the line, that would be unconscionable. As Johnny Depp's lawsuit against Amber Heard showed, juries are vital to preventing the law from doing just that. Jurors can apply moral judgments to cases independent of those established in law. They can use common sense to understand when the law is improperly interpreted or used to unfairly target individuals. As the great abolitionist anarchist Lysander Spooner wrote in an essay on the trial by jury, quote, Juries must judge of the existence of the law, of the true exposition of the law, of the justice of the law, and of the admissibility and weight of all the evidence offered. Otherwise, government will have everything its way. End quote. So, as Spooner uh, Spooner alludes, juries don't have to convict a person for a crime, even if the facts of the case are proven beyond a reasonable doubt. Known as a perverse verdict or jury nullification, juries can acquit defendants for any reason, including if they believe government hasn't followed proper procedure, if they disagree with the application of the law, or if they believe the law itself is unjust. Nullification is a vital bulwark against communities being forced to suffer laws and applications of laws with which they disagree. Having that fundamental backstop in place ensures that the government has to abide by due process obligations more strictly and counter any suggestions that they're victimizing accused individuals for political purposes. It's also an important vehicle that citizens can use to urge civil servants, ministers, lawmakers, and judges to to rethink the laws they impose and interpret. Professional lawyers and politicians are often led astray by the bad incentives and echo chambers that tend to emerge within elite circles. Now, a good example of this from American history would be the Fugitive Slave Act. Washington, D.C. was perpetually concerned with compromising with pro-slavery congressmen, placating their desire to see slavery protected from its rightful place in the dustbin of history by special favors from government. Wanting to avoid civil war and secession, pragmatists gave in through measures like the Fugitive Slave Act, which bound free states to return escaped slaves to their masters, or by accepting one new slave state for every free state admitted to the Union. It took the common sense and moral decency of randomly selected juries to ensure this law was not universally applied. So with the Scottish government now seemingly prizing arbitrary conviction rates for sexual assault accusations rather than the merits of the individual cases, juries are the key to protecting the accused from government overreach. Now Harrison Griffith says, look, of course juries having this power is not perfect. All white juries were instrumental in allowing lynching to go unpunished in the Jim Crow South. In the UK, juries have acquitted environmental extremists who've broken the law by blocking highways and damaging property. Some of us may remember the the O.J. Simpson trial, you know, a few years back. However, he says, the Scottish ministers and judges, having clearly justified to themselves that ancient procedural checks on their power should be cast aside to suit their preferred legal outcomes, he says, the role of juries is more important than ever. I completely agree. And you may think, well, you know, this is a guy talking about Scotland. What does that have to do with us here in America? Well... It's, it's probably because of my association with the Bundy family and various trials that, uh, that took place uh, both in Nevada as well as in Oregon. I have really come to believe, and I, I have a testimony of the, the power of the jury. Now, some people disagree, of course. They feel like, well, you know, juries are the reason they just tricked the jury and that's why the Bundys got away with everything. No. I say this as someone who had a front row seat, you know, for a lot of this. What the juries were able to see was they saw a pattern of corruption and they saw a pattern of abuse on the part of the federal government. And they refused to convict based on that. This was a good thing. No matter how you feel about the Bundys, it's a good thing when a jury says, uh, no, this does not pass the sniff test. We're not going to convict this person. And I would remind you, it only takes one person refusing to convict to hang the jury and to force either a new trial or you know, for the government to drop the charges. So as I've said many times before, when that summons arrives in the mail telling you you're being summoned for jury duty, counted as a blessing, counted as a privilege, you are being given the opportunity to stand as one of those bulwarks for liberty, to prevent the the state from prevailing simply because might, makes right by the way there's some great information at fija that's fully informed jury association fija.org something tells me that if uh, an informed juror can be found on the uh, daniel penny jury when he goes to trial
0: in new york that man's not going to be found guilty this is the brian hyde show This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I
1: would like to invite you, if you're so inclined, if you find value in this program of any sort, come away feeling a little bit more enlightened or perhaps even encouraged and strengthened in your conviction of what you stand for, please consider letting somebody else know about it. I'll be the first to admit this is not for everybody. Okay, I understand for some people it's like, oh, he's a bit much. I just really don't know that I can can stand to listen to that. And that's okay. Not everybody is at a point where they can can look at this kind of stuff and, and consider this and, and be comfortable with it. And I, I'm, I'm okay with that. I don't take it personally when someone says, nah, this just isn't for me. Because there are people who are actively seeking what I'm trying to share here. You're one of those people. And if you know someone who's kind of like minded, feel free to to share with them. Hey, have you given a listen to this? Or I think you'd enjoy this segment, or whatever. Um, maybe see if there's there's uh, you know somebody else seeking truth in the same way that you are. My goal here is is not to to become famous and rich. My goal here is to simply speak the truth as best I understand it, because I really believe that's what God is asking of me. I believe that's the tools that He's given me to work with. And I want to deliver as best I can on, on that uh, assignment. All right. Three quick articles here I'm going to touch on in this final segment. One is from Brandon Smith. Love this article. It's titled, The Club of Rome, How Climate Hysteria is Being Used to Create Global Governance. I, I really do get tired of some of the, the climate change hysteria. And it's, it's ubiquitous. It is everywhere. And it's, it's it's taken as a given, well, you know, we're just trying to hit these climate, uh, these climate guidelines and these targets, you know, that we need to hit by this time and that time in reducing emissions. And every, every step we take backwards economically seems to be in the name of climate change. Sorry, but we're all going to have to get into EVs and, you know, as if this clean energy is going to, to save the planet. And yet... Nobody wants to talk about, okay, but what about uh, the energy that's expended to get the materials to make the batteries for these EVs? Oh, we don't talk about that. Okay, the electricity that you charge them with, what powers that? Oh, we don't talk about that either. I guess what I'm saying is color me a skeptic, but Brandon Smith does a wonderful job of, ha- of spelling out how this climate change hysteria is being used as a tool of change, particularly to create global governance. It's a huge power grab. Also, going to include an article here from D. Parker. This is from uh, his substack. And it's called Eight Eight Disturbing Similarities Between the Democrat and Nazi Parties. Now, I understand, you know, people get this knee-jerk reaction. Oh, there it is, Godwin's Law. Everything you don't like, you compare it to Hitler. And I'll admit, it gets overused a lot. Everything is literally Hitler, you know, in some people's minds. These are some pretty good comparisons. I'll just get—I'll run through the, the list here real quick. I won't go into the details, but... Um, Democrats and Nazis were and are obsessed with gun confiscations. Democrats and Nazis are collectivists. The overarching philosophy of both Democrats and Nazis is centralized control. The centralized collectivist philosophy of the Democrat and Nazi parties is epitomized in the phrase, the common good... Far-left fascists of the Democrat and Nazi parties see force as means to their political power. Democrats and Nazis are proponents of single-party systems. In other words, there can be no competition. Democrats and Nazis are fascistic. And let's see, number eight. Democrats are striving for a totalitarian state structure and a single party like the Nazis. Now, D. Parker really goes into some detail here. And he's actually piggybacking off Steve McCann's eight startling and uncomfortable ways. The Democrat party emulates the Nazi party, but that was just the tip of the national socialist iceberg. And it's, isn't it interesting? You know, the hardcore left wing activists, you know, Antifa out there we're smashing fascism. And how are you doing that by being fascist? That's what I thought. That's that's exactly what it looks like too. Anyway, I think you'll find this uh, worthwhile reading. The similarities are there. Don't, uh, don't be thrown by the fact that they're not goose-stepping around, that, uh, well, that's, there's really no comparison. It's the core philosophies and the trajectory that they're following. They're leading to the same place, and that is totalitarianism. Collectivist totalitarianism. Yeah, communism is evil, too. But let's remember, we're, we're not being offered this false dichotomy of, well, you got to choose one. You either choose the fascists or the communists. How about I choose neither? And they both go rot, You know where. Okay. All right. One final note here. This is from uh, Jeffrey Tucker from the uh, Brownstone Institute. The people who pushed and enforced lockdowns and other COVID tyranny would love to convince us that they are just as innocent as can be. And Jeffrey Tucker's article, sorry, this is not going away, is a reminder that uh, that accountability will be coming he says the kids are two years behind in education, inflation still rages, white collar jobs are disappearing thanks to the reversal of Fed policy, household finances are a wreck, the medical industry is in upheaval, trust in government has never been lower. Major media, too, is discredited. Young people are dying at levels never seen. Populations are still on the move from lockdown states to where it is less likely. Surveillance is everywhere, so is political persecution. Public health is in a disastrous state with substance abuse and obesity at all new records. Each of these, and many more beside, are considered fallout from the pandemic response that began in March of 2020. Yet here we are 38 months later and we still don't have honesty or truth about the experience. Now, officials have resigned, politicians have tumbled out of office, and lifetime civil servants have departed their posts... But they don't cite the great disaster as the excuse. There's always some other reason. This is the period of the great silence. And he says, we've all noticed it. The stories in the press recounting all of the above are conventionally scrupulous about naming the pandemic response, much less naming the individuals responsible. He says, maybe there's a Freudian explanation. Things so obviously terrible and in such recent memory are too painful to mentally process. So we just pretend it didn't happen plenty and power like this solution. Everyone in a position of influence knows the rules. Don't talk about the lockdowns. Don't talk about the mask mandates. Don't talk about the vaccine mandates that proved useless and damaging and led to millions of professional upheavals. Don't talk about the economics of it. Don't talk about collateral damage. When the topic comes up, just say, we did the best we could with the knowledge we had, even if that's an obvious lie. And above all, don't seek justice. There's this document intended to be the Warren Commission of COVID slapped together by the old gangsters who advocated for lockdowns. It's called Lessons from the COVID War, an assessment. And the authors are people like Michael Callahan, Massachusetts General Hospital, Gary Edson, former Deputy National Security Advisor, Richard Hatchett, Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, Mark Lipsich from Harvard University, Carter Meacher, Veterans Affairs and Rajiv Venkayev, former Gates Foundation, now Arium Therapeutics. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says if you've been following this disaster, you know at least some of the names. Years before 2020, they were pushing for lockdowns as the solution for infectious disease. Some claim credit for having invented pandemic planning. The years 2020 through 2022 was their experiment. As it was ongoing, they became media stars pushing compliance, condemning disinformation and misinformation from anyone who disagreed with them they were at the heart of the coup d'etat as engineers or champions of it that replaced representative democracy quasi with quasi martial law run by the administrative state and the first sentence of the report is a complaint We were supposed to lay the groundwork for a national COVID commission. The COVID crisis group formed at the beginning of 2021, one year into the pandemic. We thought the U.S. government would soon create or facilitate a commission to study the biggest global crisis so far in the 21st century. It has not. Jeffrey Tucker says that's true. There is no national COVID commission. You know why? Because they could never get away with it. Not with legions of experts and passionate citizens who will not tolerate a cover-up. The public anger is too intense lawmakers would be flooded with emails phone calls and daily expressions of disgust it would be a disaster an honest commission would demand answers that the ruling class is not prepared to give an official commission perpetuating a bunch of baloney would be dead on arrival this by itself is a huge victory and a tribute to the indefatigable critiques or critics rather So instead, the COVID crisis group met with funding from the Rockefeller and Charles Koch Foundation and slapped together this report. Despite being celebrated as definitive by the New York Times and Washington Post, it has mostly had no impact at all. It's far from obtaining the status of being some kind of canonical assessment. It reads like they were on a deadline, fed up, typed a lot of words, and called it a day. And he says, of course, it is whitewash. There's more to this article from Jeffrey Tucker. I hope that you uh, will take the time to look at it yourself. We cannot let this go. The masters of lockdown want to invent their own reality. We cannot allow that to happen because we cannot allow them to try to push another such scenario on us again. And you know they'll try.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.